could uh, find your seat. You could say hello to the person if you want to next to you as well, as always. Thank you, worship team. If you are new to Indiana Alliance Church this Sunday, we want to say welcome and we are glad you are here with us. If you have any questions about the church, you can ask me. Uh, also in your bulletin, there are email or emails for everyone that's on staff. If you have any questions about any of those, uh, we are going to continue in our series on the seven churches in the book of Revelation. The seven churches in the book on Revelation. And we are on the third church, the church in Pergamum. And it's a seven-week series where we are going to look at what Christ says to each of these churches. And today we're going to be looking at, again, the church in Pergamum. And the title for this morning is Defeating the Flesh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you empower us to understand the Word of God. That you, Holy Spirit, as First Peter says, carried along the authors of Scripture. And we now have your holy and sacred word. I pray, Father, that you will be with us. That your love will surround us. And that your conviction and convincing of the truth of your word will pierce our hearts. May we, as we approach the word of God, come with expectancy for transformation, not just information. In your name, amen. Amen. When I was a youth pastor, there was this one video that I like to show about temptation. Now, the problem is, is that I was a youth pastor a long time ago, and this was recorded in standard definition and does not transfer well to high definition. So it would be much more distracting if I put the video up there because you wouldn't be able to see it. So I'm going to describe this video for you. There was a, a pastor and his staff who decided they were going to put a, a video together about temptation. And the story goes that the secretary brought in the most delicious chocolate cake you could ever imagine. And she put it into the main room where uh, the office would find all the food and the refrigerator and all of that. And she put it in the middle of the room on the island and put a giant note that said, Do not eat until staff meeting. Well, staff meeting is at the end of the day for this, this church staff. And the lead pastor walks into the kitchen and he sees the chocolate cake and he drools over the chocolate cake, but eventually walks away. And then every other staff member, they come by and they see this beautiful chocolate cake and they all want to eat the chocolate cake. Eventually, as everyone else is in their offices, the lead pastor sneaks back into the kitchen and he begins to sniff the chocolate cake. And he begins to get closer and closer and closer to the chocolate cake. He begins to say, oh, I can just get a little bit of the chocolate frosting and taste it. Eventually, as you probably had guessed, the story goes, the lead pastor digs his hands into it, is getting chocolate all over his face, and the entire staff walks in as he has chocolate on his face. Now, we look at that story and we say, well, that's really, that's really kind of funny, right? I mean, who doesn't want chocolate cake? Especially when it says, do not eat. There's like this thing within us that's like, oh, I wonder if it's like the best cake ever. And that's why I'm not allowed to eat it. But he gave in to temptation. The flesh of his gluttonous belly took over. Now, I can't say that I wouldn't do the same thing. Because I love chocolate cake. 
But the reality is, is that in our lives, we often give into our flesh. When tempted, we often give into our flesh. We make these small compromises that end up leading to diving into the cake, right? We, we sniff the cake of temptation. We spend time staring at it for a while, and then we start licking the icing, and eventually it becomes too much to bear, and we dig our hands into that which the enemy is trying to tempt us with. We try to justify our sin. We try to, you know, say it's not as bad as other people, but you can't play around with sin. You can't play around with the flesh because even small compromises will hinder us Small compromises with the flesh today always lead to larger compromises tomorrow. Always. It's not just a matter of maybe. It's a matter of always. If we are looking at making minor compromises without conviction and without repentance, it will always lead to larger compromises tomorrow. Look at what James warns us of in James 1, 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now the enemy, he understands the things that, that would entice us within us. We all have flesh that we have to continuously die to. Flesh that we need to continuously surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the ability to say no to giving into the flesh. But it's by our own fleshly desires, James says, that the enemy pulls the strings. He knows what would entice you. He knows the chocolate cake of your soul, and he will put it in front of you, and he will make it look and smell appetizing. It's what we do with the temptation in our lives that defines how we're walking, whether we're walking in victory or whether we're walking in defeat. And the church in Pergamum, we will see, was flirting with lines, and some were jumping over the lines and giving into the flesh. And that's why I believe that that John, as he writes the words of Christ to the church in Pergamum, gives us the answer to the question, how can we defeat the flesh? How can we defeat the flesh? So let's open up to Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. You can open up your scripture there if you want to, open up your app. Those of you who are online, it'll show up on the screen and it will also be behind me. The word of the Lord from Revelation 2, 12 through 17 says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Wow, how do we defeat the flesh? How is Christ giving the church in Pergamum an opportunity to defeat the flesh? Well, one of the difficult things about the seven churches is that the majority of people who read this have no idea what's going on in these churches' context. And so sometimes we have to take a little bit of time to give quick background. So let me give you some quick background about the church in Pergamum. The church in Pergamum was in a very, very Gentile, heavy worshiping section of the world. Pergamum was actually the capital of Asia Minor at this time. And as the capital of Asia Minor was also the capital of imperial worship. We saw last week the church in Smyrna was the first one to have the the statue that was raised for worshiping Caesar Tiberius. But here this place is even more fanatical about worshiping Caesar. It's not just one statue. This is part of the entire culture where they would continuously declare Caesar is Lord. And they would force people to bend the knee to say this very thing. Caesar is Lord. But there's also two other worship sections, temples, that were here. One was for Zeus. And if you know anything about the Greco-Roman world, Zeus was considered the most powerful god, the leader of all the gods on Mount Olympus. And one of his phrases that they would have in Pergamum is that Zeus is the Savior. Also, another god, and I'm looking at my notes to make sure I don't say it wrong, Esoclopius, the Greek god of healing, was also called the Savior. People from all over the Greco-Roman world would pour into Pergamum in order to be healed. They believed that this god would bring healing to their body. They would give anything to receive the healing from this Greek god. And then they would worship Zeus. And then they would worship Caesar. This was a very pagan place to live and the Jewish ins- the, the Jewish folks were not living there as well the influence of the Jews was not in this place now we saw in Smyrna that the Jews hated the Christians and they purposely slandered their name and brought them before the the the, the Romans to get them killed and get them in a lot of trouble that's not happening necessarily in Pergamum but they live in a pagan pagan world Now, we might imagine ourselves living in a pagan world, but I tell you, we have no idea the depth of immorality that was happening in the Greco-Roman world. We have no idea the depth of it, because the, the aspect of gluttony and drunkenness and sexual immorality was not just something that people did, it was celebrated. It was a part of their culture. Yes, feed your flesh. And Pergamum was a feed your flesh type of city. And here we see some people infiltrating this particular space in the church. They had held fast to faith. Antipas was a person who died for the faith. And most of the martyrs in this time frame were people who refused to say that Caesar was Lord. Because in doing so, they would have to refuse Christ and deny Christ as Lord. 
and they refused to do that. So this is where we find ourselves in the city of Pergamum. And we have to live into the background and the context to understand why Christ says what Christ says and what it means for them and for us. I believe that Christ in this passage gives us five ways in which we can defeat the flesh. And the first way is the way of judgment. Because Jesus is the judge, the jury, and the executor of judgment. He's the judge, the jury, and the executor of judgment. He opens up this letter to the church in Pergamum, and he says that from the words of the double-edged sword, the one who has a double-edged sword. Now, to you and I, that's like, oh, wow, okay, that's, what does that mean? To the church in Pergamum, it had high significance because judgment was given to the Romans by a symbol of the sword. They would have a sword that symbolized judgment, that they were the ones who chose who would die and who would live. No one else but the proconsul would have the power to choose judgment. And here, Jesus is saying, I am the judge. I am the jury. I am the executor of judgment. Osborne, a commentator, explains it way better than I do, so I will share with you his words. Here is probably it is used because the Roman proconsul in charge of the province resided in Pergamum. And the symbol of his total sovereignty over every area of life, especially to execute enemies of the state, which is called the Aes Gladi, was the sword. This tells the church that it is the exalted Christ, not Roman officials, who is the true judge. The ultimate power belongs to God, and nothing the pagans can do will change that. Living in this culture that we see in the, the life of the people in Pergamum, they would have this image of Rome as the ultimate power. Now, when you are a conquered people, when you're living in an empire like Rome, you can't help but believe that Rome has it all, that Rome has all of the power. But Jesus is telling the church in Pergamum, listen, do not be afraid of the judgment of the Romans, for I am the ultimate judge. Do not be afraid of the sword of Rome, because my sword is stronger, my sword is is bigger. My sword is double-edged. I, I alone, am the judge, the jury, and the executor of judgment. Now, this would sound a little bit scary, because he's saying, die. Instead of refusing me, die, and I will judge them more than they could ever judge you. Be willing to sacrifice yourself. Now, we talked about suffering last week, and these are some of those passages that are just not fun, right? Christianity is not a fluffy, rainbow, unicorn type of thing all the time. There are moments of great passion and great beauty, but there's also moments where we are promised that we will suffer, that there will be persecution. And here he's saying, listen, I'm the judge. Do not be afraid of Rome. And also there would have been in Pergamum, if you're a Gentile who came out of the pagan world, you now have friends that are probably still in the pagan world. 
there would be this fear of your neighbor of not just the judgment of Rome in the sense of execution, but the judgment of Rome as shunning you, pushing you away, the friends that you would have tried to spend time with now you no longer get to spend time with. And so there's this fear of rejection. And so there would be this this temptation for those in Pergamum to live for the pleasure of Rome and to live for the pleasure of their neighbors. But Jesus is saying, do not live for the pleasure of others. Live for my pleasure. Because our lives should be lived for Jesus and Jesus alone. Our lives should be lived for Jesus and Jesus alone. He's reminding them, live for me. Live holy lives for my sake. Be set apart. You are different. I am the judge. I win the war. You don't have to be afraid. Now this is a difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around. Because none of us are being forced to say that uh, our leader, our president is God. That we have to bow down to them and worship them and deny Christ completely. We can't fathom what's happening. But there are slow compromises that are creeping into the church that would lead them to drift away from Jesus. And part of it is the temptation to live for the pleasure of others rather than the pleasure of the Lord. The second way is the way of recognition. We must recognize that Jesus is intimately acquainted with our compromising fleshly culture. He's intimately acquainted with our compromising fleshly culture. Now, this is a purposely provocative point because you might think that I'm saying that Jesus is intimately acquainted because he did compromise, because he lived in the flesh. That's not at all what I'm saying. Jesus never sinned. We see that in Scripture in this passage in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, says that very thing, that he experienced every temptation, every aspect of the human life that you and I have or ever will experience, Jesus himself experienced. He walked this earth. He lived around the Greco-Roman world, and he lived around greater temptation than even you in the American culture have lived around. Yet he did not sin. So he is well aware, well aware of what is surrounding the church in Pergamum. He says it's so bad in this city, the fleshly reality is so bad that this is Satan's seat. Satan dwells in your city. You who dwell there, who have made your roots, who live in this city of Pergamum, you also are dwelling in Satan's world. Man, that's pretty intense. If if somebody said that there is a specific city in our world that was the seat of Satan, I don't think I'd want to live there anymore. I mean, no, you probably wouldn't either. You'd be like, well, let's pack our bags. But he's saying, I know what's going on in your life. Barclay states it better than I could. He said, the point here is that Pergamum was the center of that worship for the province of Asia. Undoubtedly, that is why Pergamum was Satan's seat. It was the place where people were required on pain of death to take the name of the Lord and give it to Caesar instead of to Christ. And to a Christian, there could be nothing more satanic than that. He's saying to the church in Pergamum, I'm aware of what you're dealing with. You 
are not alone. How often when we suffer, when things are frustrated, when things are so tempting and it's so unbearable, we feel alone. We look around and say, no one else in this world has any understanding of what I'm dealing with. And Jesus says, you are not alone. One of the things that we see in life is when we compare, we end up finding ourselves quickly moving to compromise. Because comparison moves to compromising. What do I mean by that? We look at other people and we say, well, their life's not as bad as mine, so it's okay that I do this thing. It, I, that person is so bad. They're so awful. Man, this one little thing I did, I just licked the icing. I'm not digging into it like that person. Comparison will lead to compromise. And if we compare ourselves to other people and say their life is perfect, they have no idea what's going on. I'm all alone. And we believe that lie, we'll continue to listen to the lies of the enemy, and we will fall into sin. We saw this word last, last week. The word for know here in the Greek is oida, and it means to see, understand, or be intimately acquainted with. Jesus understands what surrounds you. And it's not just the pain and suffering that he talked to in Smyrna about. He understands your temptation. He understands your, the fleshly desires that you have within you. He understands it. But he walks alongside you to help you, to guide you, to direct you. You're not alone. Don't believe that lie that you are alone. Osborne says, to remain true to Jesus' name means to live up to the responsibility of this new identity, to resist the lure of this pagan world. Jesus, in saying, I know what you're dealing with, then goes on to talk about how you and I can defeat the temptation in our world. He talks about clinging to his name. He says in this passage, Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. I know where you lived. I understand the temptation around you. And many of you have held fast and clung to my name. Because clinging to Christ makes conquering the flesh achievable. The word hold fast in Greek is kriteo, which means to seize, to attain, to grip powerfully, or to grasp with all of your might. Clinging to Christ makes conquering the flesh possible. Imagine that you can fall on your knees and cling to Christ. We have that capability. We have that possibility. Christ is all we need. Christ is enough. When the enemy begins to entice you in your fleshly desires. Cling to the name of Christ. Claim the name of Christ and say, no, I will not give in to this because I have Christ who died for me, who rose again to empower me with his Holy Spirit to deny this flesh. Many of you, if you have that cake in the kitchen that you just want to dig your fingers in, maybe you just need to leave the building and never walk into that kitchen again. The Lord will direct you and guide your path. He's saying, you clung to me, and so you were able to defeat the flesh. 
The third way that you and I can defeat the flesh is the way of denial. Defeating the flesh requires denial of the flesh. Defeating the flesh requires denial of the flesh. Here he moves from encouraging them, saying, you've clung to my name and you've clung to faith. And he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. He brings the hammer down and he says, listen, some of you are on the right path and you have the understanding that you're clinging to my name. Keep doing that. But there's some of you who are not denying your flesh. You are actually clinging to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Now, he uses the word kriteo again. And he uses in the beginning, he says, you have not, not denied the faith and have clung to my name. And now he uses this idea of kriteo again, which essentially is saying, when you cling to Balaam's teaching and the Nicolaitans' teaching, you deny me. He switches it around. I love how this happens in the Greek, and sometimes we can miss what's actually happening. But he's saying when you cling to other teaching, when you cling to this false teaching, you are denying me. The teachings, uh, teachings of these two groups are very similar. Now, you and I have no idea what the teaching of the Nicolaitans or of Balaam would be unless we read the context. Essentially, what these, these two groups, they were usually folded in together, and that's why he says these two things together at the same time. The goal of these two groups was to say, you can follow Christ, but compromise in certain areas. Food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. Now, this is not the issue that Paul pushed back on, the food sacrifice to idols that you and I are thinking because in this space, what this is talking about with the Nicolaitans is that they would go to these temples and they would eat meals together with the Gentiles who were worshiping these gods. And the Nicolaitans and those who followed Balaam's teaching to Balak would say, it's okay. You can cling to Jesus and go eat in the temple with the other gods. You can go and get your body filled up with food and walk in the gluttony of, of the pagan world because you have Jesus. It's okay. You can go ahead and get completely drunk. You can go and have sex with anybody you want to because it's giving your flesh what it desires and you still have Christ. Now, for those who were Gentiles who came out of the pagan world, and had to walk away when they came to faith from those fleshly desires that they were able to lean into every day, anytime they wanted to, and they de just dedicated their life to Christ. The church said at that time, you have to walk away from those sinful, sinful lifestyles. Now, some of the people are coming into the church, and they're saying, you don't have to deny those things. It's okay. You can do whatever you want to. Jesus is bigger than all of those things. Sadly, we live in a culture where that happens today. Where people say from the pulpit, from the Sunday school classrooms, it's okay. We've even seen pastors fall and they say, oh, it's okay that I have an adulterous affair. God's grace is so big. It's true. That's not at all the truth. 
We are to deny our flesh. Small compromises with these other gods will lead to big compromises. Big compromises. They say it's okay to do so. But we see in James 4, 7 through 8, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Challenges us to deny our flesh, to resist the, ev- the devil's temptations. They have the exact problem, the opposite problem, rather, of than the, the church in Ephesus. These people were a people who loved one another. They encouraged one another. They, they, they were about one another in a community, but they were allowing the Nicolaitans' false teachings to creep in to the church. Imagine. I want you to imagine this. I am not saying this. I want you to imagine this. Okay? Imagine that in Sunday school, or from the pulpit, someone says, you know what? It is okay for every man to look at pornography, and every wife needs to let it happen. Do you know how many marriages would fall and fail? A lot. Because if they're like, well, my pastor said I can do that. I can give into the flesh. There would be very little thought for many men. That is what was happening. The church leaders were allowing these types of of sermons and Sunday school lessons to go forward. They were tolerating false teaching. And here's what is true about this passage. Tolerating false teaching is the same as living out false teaching. Tolerating false teaching is the same as living out false teaching. When teaching that is approved that is something that Christ disapproves of, we're rejecting his word and we're walking away from him. Now, the leaders of the church might not have been living into this truth because there were some who were encouraged. Many of them were holding fast to the faith, but they were compromising and allowing some Sunday school teachers and a couple of other preaching teachers to share this false belief. They were not standing against it. They were not pushing it back because, oh, well, it's not necessarily a doctrine. It's, it's not talking against Christ. It's, it's just it's something different. It's how people live their lives. You know, YOLO. You only have one life. Go ahead and live it. Do it. And here, Christ confronts the church because they were tolerating these false teachings. It was the same as if they were living into it. Which leads us to the fourth way of defeating flesh. And the fourth way is repentance. Repentance is a realignment of the heart and a renewed focus on Christ. Sin is giving into the temptation. There were some in Pergamum who were giving into the temptation. And it was so serious This is why tolerating false teaching is the same as living it out. It was so serious that Christ says, repent, turn away, move away from these teachings, push them out of the church, don't allow them to be put into practice, push those out because we are called to be holy, we are called to be set apart, we are called to not be of this world, but in this world. 
We're called to be different. We're called to be uh, people that lead people to a different life, a life that is full of faith and truth in Christ. Don't compromise. And when you do, repent. Turn back to him. Remember James 1, 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Your fleshly desires are and will be played upon by Satan. What you do with that temptation shows a lot about who you are in Christ. Are you walking in victory or are you walking in defeat? Christ desires for us to live in victory, to defeat the flesh. But we will stumble and we're called to repentance. Repentance is a realignment of our heart so that we can focus again on Christ. He knows what we struggle with. He is very well aware of what you wrestle with in your life. He does not sit back and look in surprise at, I can't believe that person just did that. He knows what you wrestle with. Turn to Christ. Focus on Him. Cling to His name. And repentance is the key to returning to right relationship with Christ. Repent. I was talking about this a couple Wednesdays ago. I, uh, I, I have the opportunity to read some of the papers for our ordinance. I'm on the licensing, ordination, and consecrating committee for the Western PA of, of our denomination, Christian and Missionary Alliance. And I get to read the Savior papers. And I, I, I was telling someone that the very first thing I do when I open up the Savior papers, I go to the upper uh, search bar and I type in the words repentance. You'd be surprised how often the word repentance is not mentioned in the Savior paper in our, in, with our young pastors. Repentance is key. Repentance is necessary. We don't talk about it that often in the American church because we just, we live by the culture. Like, it's okay, do, do what you want. But that's not the way God has it for us. We need to allow the word and the Spirit of God to convince you of your need to repent. When Jesus says that I am the one who has the sword out of my mouth, I will wage war with the sword out of my mouth, he is talking about the Word of God. The very Bible you hold in your hand or the app on your phone, he is saying the Word of God is what we need. And the Spirit of God gives us the ability to have ears to hear what he is saying to the church. Are we opening up our scriptures? Are we spending time with the Lord? Are we allowing the Spirit of God to wash over us, to declare to us the truth of His Word? We need God's Word. I say this often, but it's so true and it's sad that we have in America the highest access rate to Scripture that the world has ever seen. The highest access rate to the Word of God 
than the world has ever seen. And we have the most biblically illiterate Christian culture in the world. That is a sad reality, a testament against the church in America. We need the Word of God, my friends. We must dig into the Word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 uses this same imagery. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We need to live on our knees with an open Bible and an open heart before the Spirit of God. That is what is required of us to defeat the flesh. We need to move forward in victory. And you might say, well, all these other people are having so much fun. It looks so much fun what they're doing. But go back to how you lived in the pagan lifestyle of your sin and remember how empty you really were. That lifestyle is full of emptiness, is full of brokenness, is full of pain, is full and full and full of death. But Christ offers life. Victory over the flesh is life. And the fifth and final way of defeating the flesh is the way of intimacy. Deeper levels of intimacy await those who defeat their flesh. Deeper levels of intimacy await those who defeat their flesh. This should be an attractive thing for us. That when we defeat our flesh, when we repent, and we have victory over the temptation that the enemy seeks to bring to us, we have deeper intimacy with the Lord. That means that we have deeper power, deeper strength, deeper love to conquer the flesh and to love one another. Because it's both. We need the love that was called to the church in Ephesus, and we need the truth that was called to the church in Pergamum. Together, love and truth are how the church is to function. And we can't do that without intimacy with the Lord. Now, why do I say that? The idea of the hidden manna and the white stone with a name that is known only to you and to Him, these are images of intimacy. Especially when you look at the white stone. Think of someone that you love. And think you might have a pet name that you give them that only you are allowed to use. And only you two know that name. How intimate is that? How intimate is that? I love being able to call my kids some of their pet names. Right? I call Amelia sometimes, uh, Peanut was one of the first names that she was given because she was so small, five and a half pounds when she was born. She looked like a peanut. She was very small. And we have all of these names for our kids and for our spouses and for our family members. Those are names of intimacy. My grandma, no one else is allowed to use this name. If you use it, I'll walk away. She calls me Marvy. Any other adult that calls me that, I will not answer. But she calls me Marvy, has my whole life. And she calls me old buddy, which, I mean, is weird because I'm not old compared to my grandma. But we have these names. They're names of intimacy. When we defeat the flesh, we conquer what Satan has tried to throw at us, to push us down, to hinder us, 
man, when we get to heaven and we eat the hidden manna and we partake of this beautiful, beautiful meal with just God and we have a name that he has just for us, that's intimacy. Because they were going to these houses of worship and eating food, Christ says, I will give you good food with just me. Intimacy. Deeper levels. My friends, we need to be a church. We need to be a people. We need to be individuals who defeat the flesh. Christ has given you the power. He has given you the capability. He has given you the truth that he is walking in this life with you. He is not surprised by what's thrown your way. But he will give you the power and the strength to defeat the flesh. Let us today live into these five ways of defeating our flesh and tell stories of victory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time. We pray that this word will go deep into our hearts and that we'll be changed. In your holy and precious name, amen.